0: Church, But it's more than just a building or a church. We have a calling to be a place where people can find a relationship with God instead of religion. A place where freedom is found and acceptance given. And every person can discover their purpose and experience the kind of fulfillment only God can give. Together we will raise, lead, and empower a generation to change the world. Here, Jesus is famous and all the glory goes to God. This is celebration. This is our family. Welcome home. Hello, boys and girls. How y'all doing? Welcome to our first Wednesday service. Great time of singing and praising God, huh? Wasn't that awesome? Totally awesome. So, uh, I we're in the kind of kind of a strange. Series here. Uh, first, I did a series about the Bible. Didn't really teach much from the Bible, uh, and we certainly believe in the Bible and preach about it. I've got 20 years of service on the Bible. It's not like we don't. I just wanted to stop, and th- thank a lot of you who are older Christians for being so patient, because this really helped a lot of very young Christians who had no idea. I got so many comments of. Oh, now I get it. Oh, that's why that's there. And that's, so going through some church history and where did the Bible come from? What books made it into the Bible? Which ones did not? Who decided this? Oh, how did all this happen? So that's what we did. And we pretty much found out that uh, it was pretty much determined on whoever wrote it or was very close to someone who had seen it or something like that, particularly in the New Testament, okay? Now, I want to go into... uh, just a very simple series. I don't know how fast we'll go here, but uh, again, just kind of a basic. Now, you might be a Christian for a long time and not know a lot of these things, but I just thought, you know, the Bible encourages us anything that's good towards godliness and understanding to encourage it. So that's what I'm going to do. Discussing church history. How did we get from the apostles to here? What was the journey? What transpired during this time? So that's what we're going to take a look at. I've asked Miss Becky to come. And uh, be my Vanna White. (laughs) So I asked her, do you have good penmanship? She says, it's okay. I said, mine's so bad I can't even read what I wrote. So I thought I would have her write for us. So what we're going to do is start the year 95. There you go, 95. All right. And maybe a little mark off. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. like right there. Just a little line. There you go, hash mark. No, just the hash mark. <laughs> Nothing meaningful about it at all. Okay. So, and write the book of Revelation. This is what happens here in the year 95. Yes, correct. <laughs> the book of Revelation is written here. This is the last book of the Bible, John on the Isle of Patmos. He's the last uh, apostle. And as far as we know, was the only one that was, that was not martyred for his faith. Uh, so we start from there, and then what happens? Now, uh, a lot of the early church... <laughs> uh, a lot of the uh, New Testament doesn't give us a whole lot of detail on how they worshipped. It's a bit of a mystery. And the only way we find out from what happened was... The recordings of those right after that and how they did their services. The closest thing we can get to is uh, um, where, where the apostle Paul writes about some worship elements, uh, very charismatic sounding. I mean, this, you know, people would take turns prophesying, speaking in tongues and that kind of stuff. I don't know if that was their normal service or whatever it was, but he describes that because he wants to make sure it's being done correctly But beyond that, we just don't have a a whole lot of detail. So what happens is about the year 150, there you go, as our next jump. And we're going to write the name of this patristic early father of the church. His name was Justin Martyr. And uh, he, and it's amazing some of these records and stuff. He writes what one of their services looked like. And I want to read this to you so you can get a picture of what by the year 150. You remember, these early fathers, if it wasn't the apostles, it was guys that worked under the apostles or worked for the people who worked for the apostles. So very strong connection here. And this is how they were worshiping. He said, he writes, on, on the day called Sunday, there is a gathering together in the same place of all who live in a given city or rural district the memoirs of the apostles, the writings of the apostles, we'd call it reading from the New Testament, or writings of the prophets of the Old Testament, are read as long as time permits. And one of the things about their gathering is they were rather long. They weren't in and out in an hour like we do. Uh, but, you know, they didn't have transportation. There weren't any football games. <laughs> I wouldn't think for anybody to do. They would get together and they would hang out for a really long time at worshiping. Uh, churches did that actually for a long time until we got to the modern era. Now, even in the 1950s, uh, congregations would get together in early sixties, even, uh, would get together and church was an all day affair. How many of you guys remember Sunday night services? Yeah, a few of you. Yeah. We'd go to church in the morning for his line The preach. He wanted to go for an hour. He just went hour and a half, whatever. He'd just do his thing. Everybody break for lunch. Uh, take a nap and come back and we'd keep doing church. And this went on and on and on until just recent history where you just can't get people to show up for the hour, much less (laughs) six or seven or eight. So, but in the early church, certainly that's what they did. And they would get together. So when they were gathered, it was always on a Sunday and they would read from the writings of the apostles or the prophets. Uh, Then when the reader ceases, the president in a discourse, admonishes and urges the imitation of these good things. Now, the president, obviously, is some guy who is the leader. There is no reference to a bishop or a priest or uh, even a pastor at this point. It's just these churches would gather together. Some, they would have a vote, I guess, and, or I'm not sure how they did it. Uh, anyway, one guy would be called the president of the organ, the leader of the organization, the gathering. And he would get up and admonish, which is what you hear on Sundays in churches all over the world. Someone would read from the scriptures, and then someone would admonish from those scriptures. That's what we do. We teach from the Bible. We've done this, and churches have done this for thousands of years, all the way back to uh, recorded uh, the year 150. Uh, We assume they did that as well in the very early years. But again, there's no record of that. So at least by now, this is what they're doing. It says, so next we rise together and send up prayers. So what they would do is they would stand and they would offer up prayers to God. When we cease from our prayer, bread is presented and wine and water. Now, their tradition uh, at this time of the, in history, they would blend wine and water. They they'd do this even at table when they're drinking and stuff. So we wouldn't do that, but that's what they did. So, so the president pastor, whoever, in the same manner, then sends up prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability. (laughs) I don't know what that means. (laughs) Maybe the guy couldn't pray very well. Anyway, and the people would sing out their assent, saying, amen. That's what they would do. A distribution and participation of the elements for which thanks have been given is made to each person. So he's talking about the Lord's Supper. And if you look at his writings again, you can Google this stuff and read. It's really rather long. These people were really long writers. Holy moly. It's hard just to read it. But he'd get into great detail about how they would do communion and they would take the bread and the wine mixed with water. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, the, the people who would do this were born again. They use the word regeneration. That's what it means to be born again. Believers who had been baptized, followers of Christ, and they would gather together and take part with the Lord's uh, supper. Okay, uh, da, da, da. so a distribution and participation of the elements, who should be given thanks, is made to each person, and to those who are not present, they are sent by the deacons. So, what they would do is for anybody who couldn't couldn't make it to Sunday, there were deacons who would take oh, whatever consecrated bread and wine uh, during this prayer time, and they would take it to their homes. So they could participate in the Lord's Supper that way. Uh, those who have means and are willing, each according to his own choice, gives what he wills. And what is collected is deposited with the president. So they would take offerings. They gathered together, they prayed, they sang, they read from the Bible, somebody preached about the Bible, they would do uh, uh, communion, and they would have an offering. Uh, now, we all make our assembly in common on Sunday since the first day of the, on which God changed the darkness and matter and made the world. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth on the first day. Jesus Christ, our Savior, ro- rose from the dead on the same day for they crucified him on the day before Saturn's day, which is what it was called in the day. It turned into Saturday. Uh, and on the day after, which is the day of the sun, which becomes Sunday, he appears to his apostles and disciples, and he gives us reasoning why they did what they did and on what day. And we know in the New Testament, they would gather on Sunday. The Jews would gather on Saturday. That was the Sabbath, the traditional Sabbath. Christians uh, lot uh, celebrated the resurrection, and that happened on a Sunday. So that's what they did. It's, it's really interesting to read. And boy, this is just a classic example of people hearing what they want to hear, because I was reading this and it was from a liturgical perspective. And they were saying, this proves that they celebrated the mass back then. What version of mass do you have here? There's no record of any priest, no robes, no candles, no lighting, none of the whole big thing you would associate with a mass. Any regular Protestant would look at this and go, sounds like a regular church service. You know, but people want to see what they want to see and hear what they want to hear. And trying to reason with them is like talking to the wall. Anyway, to me, it's very, very clear that they gathered and celebrated uh, much as we do to this very day. Now, I'm sure their songs were not nearly as, as hip as ours. The bands weren't nearly as cool. And the lights definitely were not hip at all. So, but it doesn't really matter. This is just culture. And they would sing. Uh, as they would in their culture, celebrate God, give thanks to God, offer up prayers to God, preach from the Bible, and take communion, and then an offering, exactly the kind of way we do things to this day. Um, uh, One of the things he says in here is they would all kiss each other, which was the culture at that time in that place. Actually, it's still the culture in many places in the world, when you see somebody, you meet someone, friends and stuff. You give them a kiss on the cheek. You'll see this from the French, mwah, mwah, you know, whatever, or the Russians. You know, even the diplomats, they grab each other and kiss. You know, whatever. Uh, we don't do that. We shake hands, which is more COVID-friendly, I guess. <laughs> so. I had to throw that in there. Anyway, so that, that, they just showed in detail how they would gather. They'd greet each other. They'd kiss each other. They would do all these things. And this is how they celebrated their faith. All right. So now we jump to the year 200 and kind of bracket 200 and 300 together. And leave a little space there so you can write in between 200. Oh, on the bottom. Not that far. Back up. A little more. Back up. There. About 300. Throw that in there. All right, so 200 to 300. Now a bunch of stuff happens during this time period. Um, uh, this is when the Apostle Creed shows up in history. This is what, what we celebrate uh, and we talk on every Sunday. This Creed, about you can write down Apostles' Creed, goes in there um, during this bracket in the bracket. Yeah, okay. So um, and they would do this for people who were getting baptized. If you were going to get baptized, the first thing you would do is you would memorize the Apostles' Creed so you knew what you were talking about, what it is that we believe. Part of it is these creeds, as we talked about last time, was done in an effort to get rid of some of the heresies that were going along. Gnosticism was the greatest heresy in early Christianity. And we talked a little bit about that. I'll revisit it again uh, briefly. There was basically this thinking that anything physical uh, and enjoyable was sinful, uh, you know, to the, I mean, this carried through Christianity to this day, you'll even see commercials. The chocolate is sinfully delicious. You know, if it tastes so good, it has to be sin, that kind of thing. So it was like a big problem in the early church, anything, because they didn't know how to do these things, uh, especially sexually. They had no, Jews have thousands of years of celebrating sex and marriage from a godly perspective. Pagans had no such experience. The only thing they knew, because it was a very sexual culture, the pagan culture, was in the context of lust and prostitution and demon worship and stuff. They had the most difficult time. They never did quite get it right. Uh, We could do a study sometime of just that. Maybe I will. But some of the bizarre things that they taught and believed. But it was more than that. Anything food was good. And so they were convinced that anything material was evil. Okay. Consequently, they came up with this idea that because anything physical is evil, Jesus wasn't born physically; he wouldn't have done that because he's not evil. So he was a spirit, which is nonsense. And the Bible was very strong. Some of this thinking was attacked, even uh, in the uh, New Testament, where John says anyone who says Jesus has not come in the flesh is, is a false prophet, teacher. So because they had this thing, anything, and so they believe that the, you know. God didn't create the heavens and the earth because it's physical and God wouldn't do anything evil. So they came up with this theory that some demigod created the heavens and the earth. And it's just all bizarre and nutsoid. okay? And this struggle with enjoying just life and enjoying the good things in life, uh, we don't have much of a problem with that anymore. Uh, if anything, we over <laughs> overboard on enjoying it perhaps too much. But uh, in the day, it was a big problem. So they come up with the Apostles' Creed. What's the start out? We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, crucified, died, was buried, raised on the third day. All these truths are hammered to push back against this idea of Gnosticism, which created, when you start believing that, it created all, you can just imagine how everything gets just really nuts. So, so they're fighting back now, and they have this creed that is being used all over the place. Um, the first Bible, squeeze that in there somewhere, it pops up during this period, I don't care. <laughs> the first Bible, uh, as we have it today, was pretty much being shown at this time. They had the letters of the apostles, the gospels, all these things, and the uh, Old Testament prophets and stuff that they got from the Jewish people. Okay. Um, Easter. This is when Easter started being celebrated in the year 200. Um, And, you know, every once in a while, you know, these people get on my Facebook page and just, just irritate me, but they just have fits about days... Of celebrating Easter and Christmas because these, these were pagan holidays. Okay, so let's unpaganize it. So what? You know, it's the old theological question. If a fly falls into the holy water, which we don't have holy water, but this was a serious theological question in the early church. If a fly falls into the holy water, is the holy water polluted or is the fly sanctified? <laughs> and they live debated this. I mean, some of the stupid things people would obsess over. So I'm of the version that the fly is sanctified. So I say we take all this stuff and we just sanctify it. It might be a pagan ritual, but now, now we're going to celebrate Christmas on this day or Easter on this day. And we, and we take it over. We've taken it over since the last 2000 years. Nobody celebrates that as a pagan anymore. So anyway, people have fits about it. So this one, Easter, uh, which is interesting because no place in the Bible does it say to celebrate Easter, except for the fact that we celebrate the Lord's Supper and we're celebrating resurrection uh, in that sense. And there's certainly no place that celebrated birthday, Christmas. They didn't do that for hundreds of years. Uh, Somewhere I have where they started doing that, but uh, um, it just wasn't anything scriptural. So it's not that these things are bad, some people have fits about them because they think it's connected to some paganism. Man, I ain't worshiping some pagan. I'm saying, happy birthday to Jesus. All right? They didn't think... They didn't, <laughs> they didn't have birth... People didn't really celebrate birthdays and stuff like that back then. So they just kind of ignore all that stuff. So um, so the, when we get to the year 300, right across there, here is where we have infant baptism. There we go. Infant baptism. Now this, fewer things have been more debated than this. The idea, should infants be baptized? No one did any of this for the first 300 years of Christianity. Why did they start doing this? Because they were concerned. What happens to a baby or a child if it dies before it can come and have a personal uh, acknowledgement of faith in Jesus Christ? Well, Paul talked about this. He said that the, uh, that the children are sanctified by the faith of the parents. So it was already taken care of. There was no issue to get it, but they had a problem with it. So they were fearful and, you know, and, there was, and death was very common uh, back then among infant death, childhood deaths. Or, I mean, we would be shocked of how high it was in those days. Uh, people literally, uh, my brother, Bishop Ed, has a great talk on this describing how it was in those early days. People didn't even really spend that much time. They, did, they tried not to get too close to their kids. You know how we have a kid and all we do is dote on it, right? Uh, uh, our grand Deanna's daughter's had a baby and that's her first grand kid and my seventh. Uh, but all they do is take pictures of it all day long <laughs> and, and FaceTime with us all day long. Oh, look, he's going... You know, whatever. And we're just totally obsessed with, oh, it's so wonderful. It's great. We love it. People didn't do that back then. They literally kept kind of an arm's length. Be, why? Because there's a good chance this thing won't make it and will die early. And the emotional devastation that happens with it. So if that happens enough, you can imagine how people's perspectives were. And because it was so common and we were concerned, that's when they decided to start baptizing uh, infants. Um, and you can talk by the way, not just, uh, Catholics or Eastern Catholics, whatever do this. A lot of Protestants still do this, not from the world that we live from. And if you're a Baptist or anything close to that, we don't do any of that, but there are Protestants and their argument is, well, they did it back in the early church. And so, and it's just, you know, it's like trying to discuss masks you know, you've got your opinion. It's not worth the argument at this point, right? I mean, they just came out with a study that says all these lockdowns did more harm than good. If you're anti-lockdown, you shouted, hallelujah. If you're pro-lockdown, yeah, if you're, pro, if you're pro-lockdown, that's all a lie of the devil. All right. So it, it just, it is what it is. You know, you're just not going to sway anybody. Uh, their thinking, part of the argument, and these are some great preachers, in Pat, I've listened to some of these guys preach on it and why they're for it. They said the Jews had circumcision. They would circumcise their, their uh, children. Well, obviously, not the girls. I'm not sure what happens to them. Uh, but, so this is, our, this is our version, Christian version of circumcision, which is really, in my opinion, a ridiculous uh, statement, because the New Testament, Paul was very clear that circumcision means nothing. And in fact, he literally says, circumcision means nothing. So why would we take something that means nothing and come up with a Christian version of it? It doesn't make any sense to me at all. Anyway, we could have people on both sides debate and get absolutely nowhere that uh, my basically feeling of this is God does not have grandchildren. I have grandchildren. You might have grandchildren. We got he has children. And you need to come to faith in Christ and experience God for yourself. The fact that your daddy did it or your great granddaddy doesn't mean Jack, and they might have poured honey and vinegar over you. It doesn't really matter. Uh, that doesn't make you a Christian. In my opinion, do I have a hard time with people who support infant baptism? I do not. If I was at, at, the, at the hospital and someone said, Pastor, this family's in turmoil. Will you baptize the baby? It's not going to make it. I would say absolutely. I would just be nice. You know what I'm saying? I'm not going to get into debates about it. I'm not going to fight. If you really feel strongly about it, fine. <laughs> I ain't fighting about it. I don't think that's the way they did it. It's certainly not, not how they did it in Jesus' time. But uh, anyway, so this starts and then becomes the standard. Converts would still come because Christianity was still spreading like crazy. So there were a lot of adult uh, Covers And even some of these uh, liturgical churches that st- still believe in infant baptisms will baptize an adult if, they, is a, if the first time they're coming to faith and they don't have any connections with the church. Uh, but then they encourage that the children would be baptized. Again, something we don't do, but that's when it started. So it does have a very, very, very old history. Uh, and uh, it's hard to really argue with them because a lot of this early period stuff has really affected Christianity to this day. Okay, then we get to year 400. That's when Christmas shows up. That's when they started celebrating Christmas. And Christmas. And then and then they put the Bishop of Rome. It's at this point. So they have bishops all over the place. This is when now they have a prominent bishop in Rome. This is the beginning now of what eventually becomes the Roman Catholic Church. They don't view it that way. They think they've been here from the beginning. (laughs) But this is when they start, and Rome becomes kind of a central point. And uh, if you take this whole deal, this is what's known as the patristic period of Christianity. These are the early church fathers. What they said, what they did has a lot of weight. Again, a lot of us disagree with them on this infant baptism thing. Uh, Not that everyone did it, but beyond that, virtually everything they did was really, really solid. Uh, Reading their writings, and I don't, you know, I don't know how much people want to get into these things, but you can just uh, Google patristic fathers of the church. And read some of their writings and stuff. It's really beautiful. I mean, these people were in love with Jesus like crazy and had dramatic experiences with God. The vast majority of them were all martyred. Uh, these are not people who are taking this lightly. I mean, the world hated them. The resistance from, because the world was pagan and these Christians are coming along and start explaining faith from a different experience and, and, Paganism was losing out. They hated them. uh, Spoke all kinds of evil about them. uh, Said terrible things about them. They would hear them talk about the Lord's Supper, uh, the body and the blood. Uh, They accused the early Christians of being cannibals. They eat people there. (laughs) Really? Yeah, they talk about eating the body and the blood, man. They eat people, are animals. I mean, they were hated, despised. Nobody who doesn't have a dramatic faith allows them and their children to be killed for their faith. Uh, anyway, it's just an amazing time. Some of the most beautiful writings, some of the most amazing prayers. Uh, if you, uh, you can look some of these things up. You know, a lot of people struggle with what to pray. They don't know what to pray. Some of these beautiful old prayers you can find and just offer them up to God. They're just so beautifully written. Uh, so anyway, so this is the whole period. doesn't mean everything they did was right. Obviously, uh, I got a problem with the, uh, the infant baptism thing, but uh, a lot of the, the, the traditions of early Christianity were very, very strong. Okay, so then we get, you jump up another 150 years, 190 90 years, actually, 500, 590 is where we're up to now. Uh, this is the Roman Catholic Church as now the yo mama predominant power of the Christian faith. Uh, They have succeeded. Christianity has succeeded. Rome eventually collapses and the Christians are still still standing and spreading like crazy because people's lives are being dramatically impacted by this message of forgiveness and grace that you can have in Jesus Christ. Uh, What's sad is... They start uh, to lose it. Um, uh, Right about the same period is when, uh, actually, just the year before, is when they uh, were were dealing, editing the the creeds, the nice scene creed at this point. Uh, But now Christianity really starts messing up. Uh, I don't know how quickly it messed up, but once you get past that 500 year mark, it starts taking a turn for the worst. And the faith starts getting polluted with the idea that you can work your way to heaven. That it's not just about faith in Christ. You do good things to find Christ. And that's where they start doing these things. And it just increases uh, greatly. Now, uh, we get up to the year 1054. I want to start another line here. Erase. Okay. Okay. This is what's called the great schism. This is a major thing in Orthodox Christianity. We don't pay attention to it because we're not from this world, but they still debate this stuff to this day. What happens now is you have East, you have Roman Christianity, Roman Catholics, right? And you've got Eastern Christianity, uh, Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox. Uh, the thing that I am looking at here actually was printed by the Orthodox Church, they're convinced they are the true church and everybody else is wrong. (laughs) But we all can do that, right? We're right, everybody else is not quite getting this right. But uh, so this is a big deal. And they start having problems. And there's this tension. Because Rome now has decided that all prayers and all masses, because now it becomes very formalized, robes and candles and incense and all the la-di-da that goes with it, and we only talk to God in what language? Latin. And everybody has to learn Latin. Anybody here do Latin masses when you were young? Yeah. Uh, I was an altar boy. Didn't really take, but I was an altar boy. Uh, and when I signed up, it was the year that they switched it to just plain English. I was so glad. Because <laughs> I could barely speak English, much less Latin. Uh, so, so that was the thing. But the Greek church Christians all spoke Greek and they uh, did their masses and prayers and everything in Greek. And this becomes a problem. You know, people are crazy. We fight over the stupidest things. It's just now through all this history, even when bad stuff is happening, there's always groups of people who get it right. But we're just talking from the 30,000 foot level where you see the big players, they are not getting it right and they are really messing up badly. Uh, and they start fighting terribly. Um, the, wherever Rome could infu, uh, dominate influence, they would close down churches, destroy them if they spoke Latin, uh, and then the Greeks do the same thing. <laughs> in their area to, uh, to spoke, spoke Greek. The Greeks are the same thing to any Latin churches. I mean, there's a lot of tension that is building here. And then we hit this big divide. We virtually never talk about it in evangelical Christianity because all of this doesn't really matter to us at all. Uh, but to them, it's still a big deal. Uh, we talk more about the Reformation, which we'll get to in a bit with Martin Luther and, and all of that. But their big thing is this thing called the Great Schism. This is when the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Greek Church, and the Roman Catholic Church split. And they go their separate ways. Uh, and of course, you know, this is the Middle Ages. Now, people are crazy. They're just, if you, if you do something to disagree with, today we can have a debate over doctrine. Back then, they would arrest you and burn you at the stake. <laughs> I mean, people are crazy. So they start having these major uh, fights over this. Now we have this official split, which uh, the Pope just was recently. I don't know how many of you pay attention to these world things. The Pope, Roman Catholic Pope, and the Greek Orthodox Pope were meeting in Rome, and they're still trying to sue things over. I mean, talk about issues where people don't let go. Oh, my word, it's been 2,000 years, again, or 1,000 years, get over it already. But they're still trying to soothe, smooth things over because they had this big thing. And to this very day, they're still debating on how we can heal this thing. Of course, everybody will be dead by the time they figure it out. But anyway, uh, they're still dealing with it. It's fascinating. So this big schism. Now, what happens here is then, uh, right about the same time, right after this... Uh, I don't know, the year mark would be 1095, I guess. It's just uh, 40 years later. But this is when the Crusades start. uh, 1095. Yeah, anyway. The Crusades. And this is what you've seen in movies and the history. And they're all marching to war. And they're trying to free Israel and all this kind of stuff and fighting the Muslims, the barbarians. Uh, <laughs> it's really awful. Uh, the sins of, Christ- of the church at this point would be the Roman Catholic Church are on full display for the world. I mean, it's awful. It's all about power now. It's all about money. It's all about dominance and war and they're going to war. Uh, from a Christian's perspective, um, it's one thing to go fight what we would call the heathen, uh, but what happens is in the year 1204, you stick under there, um, Constantinople, we'll call it the sack of Constantinople. S A C K, sack. That's like when our own army sacks another army. The Christian the sack of Constantinople. Now, Constantinople is the Rome of the Eastern Orthodox Church. So now what we have are Christians trying to kill other Christians. And this has just gotten out of hand. Uh, So they, the Roman Catholics come in, because they're much more powerful at this point now, have way more influence than the Eastern Orthodox They invade Constantinople and wipe everything out. Uh, It was horrible. It was outrageous what they did. Uh, In the year 2001, fairly recently, The Pope officially apologized (laughs) for the sake of Constantinople. Let's not be in a hurry to get things right. Oh my word, just church history. These people are like on a snail's pace on how things change. Seriously, it was their official apology to the Orthodox for the crusade. Uh, So anyway, this gets bad. Now what happens, wars are expensive. So by now, they start offering what are called indulgences. And I'm going kind of put them together there. Indulgences. Now, in indulgences, they're basically granting and or selling forgiveness of sins. So what you would do is if you would go fight in the Crusades, they would give you an indulgence that forgives you of all of your sins. You notice now, we're not talking about Jesus forgiving your sins anymore. It's, that's not what's happening. You've got to earn it. You've got to work it off. I don't know what they thought Jesus did, but this is really getting bad. So they are now, at this point, they're no different than the Muslim fighters of today that they believe they're going to go to heaven and have 40 versions and all this other kind of version of heaven. Uh, and uh, that was what motivates a lot of these guys today. Well, that was happening in Christianity. This is a very same thing. And then they were building uh, the Vatican and all the power. So they needed to raise lots of money. So they start selling indulgences. So if you need your sins forgiven, I can take care of that for you for $95.28. You know, I've got to put some tax in there somewhere. So, you know, they start selling it. This becomes outrageous. And it's absolutely horrible. What in the world is going on? And, and we'll end with this. 1274 uh, is the doctrine of purgatory. Now, this is when it's just gotten completely out of control. They make this up, they pull it out of the air. There is no reference, no history to the idea of purgatory. It doesn't exist in the scriptures, in the Bible, in the New Testament church until almost, well, over a thousand years later when they start introducing this idea. Why do they come up with this? Because clearly your sins are so bad and Jesus didn't forgive you of all your sins and you didn't do enough penance to work off of your sins or you didn't have enough money to buy the dozens of your sins. Now you have to go to a mini version of hell to fry off your sins. And even real, I call them real honest uh, Catholic theologians will admit this one is weak. They pull it out of the air. There is no basis for this at all, except that they believe people need to work off their sins. So, and of course, once the Pope decrees it, then it becomes reality. Obviously, I'm not Roman Catholic. I don't hate Catholics at all, but I'm sort of critical of them uh, for some of these things. A lot of this isn't even pushed that hard today, though they still push the idea of purgatory today. And where these people go to burn off their sins and then you pray for them while they're still in purgatory. And and it's it's just, it's sad. It's just sad. They still struggle with this when you debate the Bible with them, the scriptures with them. uh, And there are some very devout Roman Catholic Christians who struggle with this and and they don't buy into it because they understand Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. It takes care of all of it, all of it. And it's so hard to grasp that Can God really forgive me of my sins? Yes, but I'm still a jerk. Yes, you are. But God will forgive you of your sins. If you confess your sins, John says, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You're not kind of saved. You're not partially saved. You are completely and totally, wonderfully and gloriously saved. He takes care of it all. So all of this is building, and it's been bubbling now, uh, bubbles for about a thousand years, from 500 to like 1500, and then comes along a little monk by the name of Martin Luther. We'll pick this up on the next uh, Wednesday and start talking about what happens here. This is this dramatic change now, where Luther says, "This is crazy. This is not how people come to faith." And he starts talking about faith, about being born again. You don't work off your sins. God forgives you of your sins. And a lot of And he, so he comes and starts what is known as the Protestant Reformation. Okay. Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King Jr. That's the 1960s. <laughs> this is who Martin Luther King Jr. is named for. Martin Luther, who lived uh, in the 1400s, 1500, whatever We'll look at that. And he takes the world by storm and sets everything on its head. Some of it, most of it good. Some of it not so good. And we'll, we'll talk about that. Because some of the stuff that we do as Protestants is, uh, you know, but this is where fierce individualism kicks in. And we don't need the church. We don't need anybody. Me and Jesus, we got our own thing going. You know, that, that whole thing where people are an island unto themselves, still a big problem in American Christianity. They reject the idea of the church and, and anybody telling them what to do. They go to churches where they can vote pastors out, in and out, and they do this constantly. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about some of this stuff. But it starts with this idea that you don't need the church, the Roman Catholic Church, to uh, bring you to God. You can come to God by faith. And this changes the world. It is dramatic. Uh, This is when the printing press comes out and they start printing the Bible and now everybody can read it for themselves. And uh, uh, Martin Luther starts proclaiming the doctrine of sola scriptura, which is Latin. Look it up. We'll talk about it when we get back together next time. Okay, I'm done. God bless (laughs) y'all. See you later. Thank you, Miss Becky. I can actually read that.